Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Hal Whitman. And we are editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. Imsup Americans think a little more clearly about our public life, rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It's published only by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today we're very excited to be joined by Charles Fain Lehman. Charles is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor at City Journal. He's also a contributing writer for the Institute for Family Studies, and he co-hosts the podcast Institutionalized. For our summer 2023 issue, Charles wrote an essay about America's drug epidemic, in which he observed that the nature of the crisis has changed fundamentally. Whereas drugs used to worsen health and cause social problems over time for heavy users, the availability of dangerous opioids like fentanyl has created a real risk of death for even casual users. He urged policymakers to address increased fatalities with a more aggressive approach. Charles, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. Of course. Yeah, so Charles, you know, reading your piece, the numbers is kind of what jumps at you at first, how shocking they are. You know, you note that drugs, drug overdoses are now the second most significant driver of Americans' declining life expectancy after COVID, of course. In 2021, 111,219 Americans died from drug overdoses. That's double the amount. I think it may be even more than double than 2011, so 10 years prior. Yeah, and obviously, again, as we already mentioned, the real change here is how drugs are more lethal now. And so we want to ask you first off, what has caused this exactly? Why are drugs more lethal now? How has the supply changed? How has how they're made and how they're marketed and sold changed? What is what has made them so much more deadly than in the past? Sure. And, you know, I think I think it's important to understand the ways in which we get this story wrong or often mm. behind on this story for a long time and even today it's great to focus on uh, the the what we would call it an iatrogenic opioid crisis that there's a, a spread in prescription opioids that mm-hmm. led to addiction and eventual overdose and that was a problem a substantial problem but that you know cannot necessarily explain all of the increase i i note some figures right. in the piece where i observe if you look at if you look at the, the rand corporation estimates you know between 2006 and 2016 there are about 40% increases in heroin and amphetamine uses. There mm-hmm. are actually plausibly a decrease in cocaine use. In the same period of time, there are you know multiple hundred percent, 700, 800% increases in OD deaths. Mm-hmm. So what's going on there, I argue, and I think a number of people will argue, is that there's been a transition in the kind of drugs that are being consumed. That So talk specifically that opioids for long you know for for most of the history of well really for most of the history of human opioid consumption basically what you did was you took the the sap of the opium poppy you refined it a little bit you smoke opium mm-hmm. uh, that starting that century was refined into products like heroin mm-hmm. starting in the l- mid to late 20th century we started sort of bypassing that organic process and instead producing the opioids synthetically and from from some precursor chemicals mm-hmm. uh, there are a whole set of these synthetic opioids the most well known of which is fentanyl um, it's often sort of the shorthand for everything else for diversity of them yeah and those have i think filter so so those for a long time were not in the illicit market. Mm-hmm. They are now in the illicit market. They mm-hmm. have, in fact, essentially crowded out everything. If you go try and buy drugs, you look at the kind of guy who buys drugs on the streets a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you go try and buy drugs on the street. <laughs> my, yeah, my Overwhelmingly, down, it is likely that you're not going to be able to buy heroin. You're going to buy fentanyl. Yeah, uh, That's really important for a variety of reasons we can get into. But most relevantly, 
uh, fentanyl has is much more potent than heroin. Most it, right. it, it has a it has a, a much narrower distance between its effective dose and its overdose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's very it's much much easier to overdose on fentanyl right. than it was on heroin. And so as a result, what we're seeing is uh, a dramatic uptick that has driven I think seventy five percent of OD deaths in the past year involved synthetic opioids of some kind. They are the lion's share of the increase. Also relevant here is a dramatic increase in methamphetamine, which mm-hmm. deaths, which is by by the way, also a synthetic drug. Um, right. So it's you know it's it's that syntheticization more broadly and a shift to much more potent and easier to produce forms of the same drugs right. that is driving this historically unprecedented, like literally never in recorded American history, yeah. this bad yeah. increase in drug overdose deaths. Yeah. And also following up on that, talking more about why drug dealers like this in the sense that I think you mentioned the piece that they don't need as much of a supply because the high is quicker, sadly also leading to deaths quickly. And that again, since it can be grown in a lab, they don't have to worry about planning it, the harvesting of that, then getting that, shipping it, trafficking it. It, this has all changed the the scale or the economy of scale of these drugs. Talk a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, you know, you think about it like you would innovation in mm-hmm. any market, licit or illicit. The... As, as, as you alluded to, there are lots and lots of advantages associated with fentanyl. To start with, if you wanted to mass produce heroin, you needed to have big open fields where you could grow poppies. Mm-hmm. That means you need to do it in an environment where you could do that without being disrupted by law enforcement. It made for a big, easy target for spy planes to spot. You needed lots of labor, both to farm it and then to convert it. For fentanyl, you have a, there's a different supply chain. You source your precursors, or your what do you call pre-precursors, the stuff that's used to make precursors, from gray market businesses in China that yeah. also deal with American pharmaceutical firms. You bring those into Mexico, and then you get a handful of chemists who are doing... Like, we've known how to synthesize fentanyl since the 1960s. You can go mm. find papers online. I can't personally do it, <laughs> but it's not that hard. It's not I that kind hard of to suspect do, yeah. I could teach myself. Yeah. Uh, so it is much, much cheaper to produce as a result... Mm-hmm. You know, uh, as of I think it was 2019, 2018, fentanyl is retailing at a tenth of the cost of heroin. Wow. Um, yeah. Because it is more potent, furthermore, you need less to achieve the same effective dose. So you can smuggle it in much smaller quantities to serve the same total demand, mm-hmm. uh, which is really great if you're trying to move drugs illicitly across the border. So it's, you know, it's, it's, the, the the thing that I like to say is that the dramatic increase in overdose deaths is really it's it's exactly the kind of exponential curve that you see in any market that is innovating, right? It's 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 an exponential mm. change in the quality of the product that's right. shifting to, you know, if if, if you get changes sufficient quantitative sufficient quantitative levels, you get a qualitative change. That's true again in, in, in your economy and widgets, it's certainly sure. true in the economy in opioids. Just the unfortunate fact this is leading to hundreds of thousands of deaths. Yeah, right. 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 Gotcha. Yeah. So you write that it's important to make a distinction between the two groups now at risk of overdose deaths, the most compulsive problem users and everyone else, and the interventions necessary to address each of those populations' risk in terms of drug use and, and of course, drug death are different. And you mentioned this rule of thumb that for any addictive substance, about 20% or less of the users consume 80, 80% or more of the substance. So, yeah, could you tell us more about the importance of this distinction? Yeah, and that's just the Pareto principle. It's just, it's just, and, and, and this shows up across a variety of dynamics, both in the addiction space but outside of it. But I think it's an important, by the way, an important way that you identify markets and addictive goods is, is that they are focused in on the small subset of the consumer base that does mm-hmm. the overwhelming majority of the consuming. 
So this distinction that I draw between problem users and everyone else is a little bit arbitrary because there really is a spectrum of consumption and people will sort of, the, the reality of addiction is it's much fuzzier than that. People shift in and out of addiction. Hmm. They will shift in and out of problematic use. You can use stably for years and not. But I think it is relevant for thinking at policy interventions very broadly, from, really from the perspective of very abstractly, if you raise the cost of drug use, which can mean through enforcement, it can mean through social social discouragement. If we're talking illicit goods, it can mean increasing tax rates, right? If you raise the cost of, think about the tobacco market. If you raise the cost of cigarettes by taxing cigarettes more, or if you put little warning signs on and say, like, cigarettes will kill you, right. you will have people, people will be differentially deterred by that. You'll have a spectrum of deterability. So my view is that you have to think about people who are both on the, you know, who are on the extensive margin of consumption, who are sort of wavering between, like, should I do drugs this weekend versus should I not? And then you also have people who are serious long-term chronic consumers whose addictions are, they, they you know, they, they check the boxes for substance use disorder. Um, mm -hmm. They're using, they've used, they use consistently, they're habituated. Often they want to stop or they're doing harm because of the use, but they don't stop. They're doing harm to themselves or to others, but they don't stop their use. That population is much harder to deter in sort yep. of a neutral sense of convinced to stop using, much like in the cigarette case. We've done a huge amount of work mm. to discourage the marginal user of cigarettes from consuming cigarettes over the past 30 years in American society. Right. It's a great success in my view. But there's still a, you know, a, a, a core of users who continue to use persistently. The, you know, the analogy goes so far, I don't want to get bogged down talking about cigarettes, but my point is when you think about the people who are in active, profoundly dysfunctional addiction, they are going to drive, they require one policy response. We talk about that. They require one policy response, in part because they're not going to be responsive to the other policy response. They're also going to be the lion's share of your death cause, deaths because they're the lion's share of consumption. So the lion's share of use sessions, as a result, they bear the most risk. But then you also you can't just think about that population. One of the problems right. in contemporary drug policy is that we only think of the population. We don't think of the guy who orders Coke on the weekends and the Coke is fentanyl and now he's dead. Mm -hmm. We don't think about the guy who takes oxys at a party, but the oxys are pressed fentanyl and he's dead. Mm. Uh, and that guy is rarer, but he's still a significant contributor, plausibly, to the total number of deaths. And so we think about how do you mm -hmm. shape his behavior, too? Right. So it's really, they require different interventions. They require right. different approaches. Yeah, yeah, and that, that second population of everyone else who doesn't necessarily abuse them, but could just use them on a weekend. This is that's kind of a new thing, as you, as you're saying, part of this new innovation of how drugs are more lethal. That's a new thing to yeah, do. Well, so 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 that for a long time, you know, we thought about. You, you maybe had friends. I certainly had friends who, you know, tried coke in college mm -hmm. or tried harder drugs once or twice or did them did them for fun recreationally. And there's a sense that when the predominant problem of drug use is addiction. It is perfectly plausible that you can spin the barrel a couple of times and get by fine. Mm -hmm. um, and this is mm -hmm. true. The estimated addiction rates for heroin, poorly estimated in my view, the estimated addiction rates for heroin, 20 to 40% of people who try heroin will get addicted, okay. which means you have a you know, a three in five to four in five chance of not getting addicted if you mm -hmm. try heroin. Heroin's quite addictive. Right. Mm -hmm. Better rates for cocaine, better rates for amphetamines. So for a long time, to the extent that the primary risk of drug use was addiction, that population more or less could skate by without a lot of concern. Now, even that casual use brings with it a substantial risk of overdose death. Um, right. You see this in, you know, you, you, there, there, there's all, there are stories about people who are sort of casual cocaine users who are overdosing. That population needs to be, uh, their, their behavior needs to be addressed too because they are a significant contributor because the problem is deadliest now in a way that it wasn't historically. Right, right. 
Yeah, Charles, let's shift back right now to talking about those problem users, kind of the first subset of a smaller amount of users, but these are the ones that are really at the most risk of death given that they use it the most. So let's talk about some different approaches to, of how to help them or to stop overdose deaths among them. First, the harm reduction approach. This is what you bring up. This is basically the idea that you reduce, reduce the harms associated with drug use short of encouraging cessation. So not telling people to stop using, but trying to reduce the harms associated with it. You mentioned there's these things called safe consumption sites where people can use drugs with clean needles, under supervision, those kinds of things. Places like New York, San Francisco have tried these things. My administration has also allocated a lot of money to this, millions of dollars. What are your thoughts on this approach in light of this this huge problem of, of deaths arising? Yeah, so, so harm reduction is, you know, it, it, it takes up a lot of the oxygen in the drug mm-hmm. policy debate because mm-hmm. it's hugely controversial. Yeah. Everyone who's in favor of it is rapidly in favor of it. Everyone who's against it is rapidly against it. I <laughs> often think of both sides of this is not very helpful. Mm-hmm. So, as you, you know, as you alluded to, a harm reduction, I think it's useful drug policy, you talk about demand reduction, convincing people to want drugs less through treatment or for primary prevention, supply reduction, reducing the number of drugs available through interdiction or enforcement. Harm reduction is we are agnostic to those other terms. We don't Mm. care about the total level of your drug use. We're trying to address the incidentals of drug use. So like the the canonical harm reduction example is, and harm reduction comes out of the AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s. Mm. One of the major risk groups for AIDS was injection drug users, heroin users primarily. And so the the needle exchange comes out of the insight that if you if you have AIDS and we share needles, then you can transfer AIDS-infected blood to me and I will get AIDS. I was a major source of uh, HIV in- infection and subsequent AIDS onset. And so the argument the harm reduction position was... Yes, we want to get people, sometimes, sometimes they will say, yes, we want to get people off of drugs, but in the meantime, we're going to mitigate the harm while we're working to get them to deal with their addiction, which is a hard thing to deal with. And so my view is, there are all these interventions that we're talking about, which range from, you know, I think I think the sort of less controversial at this point, naloxone, handing out the overdose, reversing drug Narcan. Right. I think many, although not all places, will embrace that. I think that's probably right. Mm-hmm. Some more controversial ones here in the United States, we're talking about supervised consumption sites, drug use centers. In Canada, they're starting to talk about, quote unquote, safe, safer supply, which is mm. just the government giving people drugs. You know, I think in bracket safer supply, but generally my argument of these interventions is not actually that they sort of are deeply devastating. I've been to one New York State supervised consumption sites, it's like it's not particularly well marked. I don't love mm-hmm. that it's right by a school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's, if they mm-hmm. clean up after themselves, they're plausibly moving some drug use off of the street, and that's nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that I don't think it's plausible that it's saving lives. And okay. yeah. the the balance there's there's not a lot of very strong evidence for supervised consumption. The way that I read it is that it is at least mixed on the question if it has any impact. Okay, and this is true by the way across a variety of harm reduction interventions. Naloxone access. My, my reading of the literature is that, on average, it has no effect, does not increase or decrease the aggregate risk of death. And there's a simple reason for this. If you are modeling, if, if you are thinking about, if harm, the, the harm reduction idea is we need to reduce the per-use session risk, the risk in mm-hmm. each use session of some adverse event. But the thing about many of those risks historically are compounding. Each time you share needles, you might get HIV, you know, gangrene might add up over time, et cetera. Right. Death is an all-or-nothing proposition. Either this is the use session where you die, or it isn't. Mm-hmm. So when you think of something like a supervised consumption site, the reality is they aren't that big. They don't scale. Many countries in Europe have had them for decades. They don't really scale up. You can't blanket your city with SCSs. And so as a result, they end up covering only a small fraction mm. of use sessions, which 
doesn't actually matter very much if use is going to be a you know if 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 you're any one use could be the deadly case if this could be the one where you od so you know i think i think that is a that is an essential limitation that people are not taking seriously in the harm reduction you know why ultimately i think it's it's just not sort of it 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 should get less attention than it currently does. It's sort of mm. an easy culture war issue, but doesn't get at the hard problems of how do we actually address drug addiction. Yeah. So one kind of approach that you do point to is as potentially successful as medication assisted treatment, or MAT, MAT, as you know, a, a way of kind of ameliorating this epidemic to some extent among these kind of problem users. You call it the least worst tool we have to stop use among people with addictions. Yet you also show in the piece that access to to this this to mat to medication assisted treatment for people who need it is is lacking. That three in four Americans who could benefit from it actually don't use it. So what are the benefits of mat in comparison to some of these other approaches? And I guess how could lawmakers go about expanding access to it? Yeah, so so medication assisted treatment is really you know the the alternate term is uh, opioid replacement therapy or opioid agonist therapy. We don't really have medication assisted treatment for stimulant use yet. There's maybe some early evidence, but like it, we really predominantly have it for opioid right. opioid use disorder. So th- there are there are, there are three FDA approved medications: methadone, buprenorphine, naltrexone. Methadone and buprenorphine are partial opioid agonists. So, uh, the way opioids work, they, they 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 bond to receptors in your brain called part, called part of part of what called, what's called the opioid system. That's what causes the feeling of pleasure, elation, mm-hmm. relaxation, etc. It stimulates that system. Methadone, buprenorphine bond to those same receptors. They dis they cause other uh, they, they, they they displace um, other opioids, but they don't have the same euphoric effect. You don't. It's it's much harder to get high off of them. It's particularly hard to get high. So it's abuse resistant buprenorphine, which is a combination of buprenorphine and naloxone. Now trexone, which is the other one, is an opioid antagonist. So it basically mm. like stops your body from it, it 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 pushes off other opioids. Right. Anyway, so you know. I think that I think that the way that people often think about medication assisted treatment is like, well, it's substituting one addiction for another. Mm-hmm. There was some legitimate concern there insofar as plausibly somebody might go on mat for the rest of their lives who could otherwise have gotten clean without it. Mm-hmm. That said, my general attitude is, you know, A, you really want to prioritize getting people clean now rather than later. B, if it is an addiction, grant the premise. It's a bit like substituting your addiction for to amphetamines for an addiction to coffee. Hmm. It is a much less dangerous addiction. Right, and I would right, prefer that. Right. So you know, I think it's it's a little bit moot from the saving lives perspective. Yeah. So the the thing about treatment, NIDA estimates something like half of people will relapse when they go into treat after treatment. Hmm. The the is addiction is a chronic disease and it takes chronic treatment yeah. to preserve it. But outcomes are consistently better on medication assisted treatment. Uh, mm. It's 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 like the front line for for managing the harmful side effects of substance use disorder. What can what can policymakers do to expand it? They sort of started to take some steps. The big one for a long time, physicians required a special waiver from the DEA called the X waiver to prescribe buprenorphine, which is a problem because like right. methadone is really tightly controlled. Mm. They got rid of the X waiver. That was great. They started to take some steps, some other sort of baby steps. I think we could be much more aggressive about mobile methadone access and mobile buprenorphine access. I think mm. much more aggressive at telehealth prescribing of both of these drugs. Mm-hmm. I think we really have to prioritize availability of all three drugs in prison and jail, mm. where many people with substance use disorders will cycle through over the course of their addiction. 
you have to be uh, you you also want to focus on sort of the longer term stuff. Um, so there are, there are oral versions that you take every day, and then there are injectable versions uh, which you get every month. It's better for medication compliance. So you know, I there are I think there are a lot of options on the table left for what they can do to make these medications more normal and more available. And this is you know as as I was saying in the piece, everybody's got to get a little more comfortable with some things. I think conservatives have to yeah. get a little more comfortable with we want to use these tools to save lives. They seem to do that. So we got you got to go over your moral squeamishness about it. Yeah, and have to spend the money to support and, that. And, and have to yeah. spend the money to support it. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, actually, the next question kind of dovetails nicely with that, Charles, of you talk about how, yes, both conservatives and liberals might need to make some concessions here to stop deaths. For the liberal side, it's they're always squeamish about compulsory treatment and forcing somebody to do something. You know, talk a little bit about what you go into the piece about compulsory treatment. What kind of forms does that take, whether it's involving the criminal justice system and courts or civil commitment? What does that look like? In what ways can that be successful in helping to stop deaths? Yeah, look, the reality is, as you alluded to earlier, this is what we call a treatment gap. There's a mismatch between the number of people who are in treatment and the number of people who need treatment. Mm-hmm. Some of that is a lack of supply, but not all of it. Some of it is that addiction is by its nature involves as I, 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 I quote Sanford addiction specialist Keith Humphreys I talk about as, as he put it addiction symptoms entail quote intense neurological reward doesn't mean that people like being addicted to drugs but it does mean that there is a positive there is, there is an incentive to continue to use mm-hmm. and a disincentive for stopping using because cutting off that reward is quite painful and so it is quite plausible that people will not always want to do what is good for them in the long run, i.e. enter treatment. Right, right. You know, I think I think that for a long time we were uncomfortable with compulsory treatment because we were treating addiction as fundamentally a health issue and it's kind of hard justified to prime people of their liberty in a meaningful sense in the interest of health, notwithstanding the past three years. It is it is <laughs> that's, that's another podcast. You know? <laughs> yeah. It is it is, I think easier to justify depriving people of their liberty when their lives are very actively on the mm-hmm. line. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there are two contexts in which you talk about compelled treatment. One is in the jail and prison context. Lots of people substance use disorder, as I said, will cycle through jails and prisons, not even just because they are arrested for their drug use, but because they are arrested for behaviors incidental to their drug use. Mm-hmm. Uh, drug addiction is a major driver of property crime in the United States. Mm. They will get picked up for stealing things. That is an should be seen and increasingly is seen in many jurisdictions as an opportunity for diversion to the extent that we can plausibly say this person's recidivism risk will be reduced by going through treatment. Mm-hmm. We should be sympathetic to the case for diversion there. There are programs called drug courts. They have, in my reading, on balance, a fair amount of efficacy, although you really have to get it right. A lot depends on program implementation. So the model of drug court is basically if you go through treatment, court-ordered treatment, with court oversight, you can get your record expunged. You don't do jail time. It's you know it's a carrot and stick model. We're going to provide you the services that you need, and also, but also we have we have this sort of hang over your head. It mm-hmm. needs to be evidence-informed and medication-assisted, but if you follow good practices, I think there's a lot of benefit there. And the other context is... You know, an, an area that we really don't think a lot about, we don't really know a lot about. Most, I think, as of, I think it was 2017, 2019, I talk about in the piece, most states permit civil commitment for substance use disorder. They don't really use it. Most civil commitment, mm. outpatient and inpatient, is used for serious mental illness. Mm-hmm. But that, the state of Massachusetts has made some moves in this direction. It's not totally clear how it's going. But but I see it as, you know, for, for people who are not cycling through the drug, through the, through the prison population, but are posing a serious threat to themselves and to others because of the substance use and cannot be otherwise brought into treatment, at a certain point you have to be willing to say, okay, here are the tools that are available. Here's 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 what we're going to do to get you clean. 
And I think that is a thing that people have to become a little more comfortable with. Mm-hmm. It is very reasonable I'm concerned about. It's very reasonable to be concerned about abuse of that system. But it is much hard when we're doing the cost-benefit balancing, we also have to say, if you don't force somebody to get help, do they die? Right. That's, yeah. uh, you know, that's a harm on the other side of the ledger that I think is more severe than it has been historically. Yeah, and, you know, kind of following on the the point about the role of the criminal justice system, you write that that's a, the role that that can play in treatment, you know, is something that should cause policymakers to think twice about decriminalizing small drug possession, as has happened in places like Oregon. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's certainly really interesting. So... As we've talked about already, the greater, far greater lethality of um, synthetic drugs means that even sort of like high status casual drug users, there are there are these examples that the Wall Street Journal recently reported on of like investment bankers and lawyers and social workers, right, who died after a single use. And for these types of users, you talk about the importance of, of, of prevention in, in combating this crisis, and that's somewhere where law enforcement can potentially be involved. So how can policymakers better equip law enforcement to kind of engage in prevention in, 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 in the context of the drug crisis? Yeah, and so, you know, I am, I am by no means, I guess, a drug peacenik, an opponent of the drug war, <laughs> although I think people often you know, misconstrue what is meant by the term drug war. Mm. I'm, but, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a fervent believer in the advocacy of, pro- of drug prohibition as mm. a tool. Yeah. We're talking about decrim if you want to, but that's sort of a separate issue. Um, mm. That said, the current crisis poses some unique challenges for sort of the historical enforcement-first street-based approach. And it goes, the argument goes something like this. The way that enforcement works, there, there are two different ways enforcement can work. One way it can work is by cutting off all the supply at once. If you do that right, you're really lucky. We have a major impact. This happened, for example, with the supply of LSD in the 70s. Hmm. We got rid of quaaludes. Like, there are no quaaludes anymore. There are a handful of heroin droughts throughout history. When you like, There's one supplier. It's a highly segmented market. You cut yeah. off the monopolist. Nobody fills the void for a while. That's good. Mm-hmm. If you can't do that, and you probably can't do that in the current circumstances... I think there are a couple of options, but that's outside the scope of the essay. You can't do that in the current crisis. Then the other option on the table is essentially trying to affect consumption through price, right? Again, let's think about drugs like any other good. If you regulate a good, you will impose, you, you will add costs that will be passed on to the consumer. If cost goes up, consumption will go down. Demand for drugs, even among people who are severely addicted, is not perfectly inelastic. They will shift their consumption behavior in response to change in price. Right. So the problem is so, – so price is sort of historically the primary mechanism through which interdiction and enforcement operations work. The problem is that fentanyl just like sets that all back way far because mm. fentanyl is incredibly cheap. Right, um, right. This is one of the benefits, the, the, the economy scale of fentanyl by, by many estimates. One estimate says the, price of, the street price of fentanyl fell 50% between 2016 and 2021. Wow. wow. There's one recent estimate as I – there's one recent estimate – that pegs the price at something like $5 a pill in across surveys. And my response to that was, I was in Portland a couple months ago, you buy fentanyl for $2 a pill. Um, wow. It's incredibly cheap. This, by the yeah. way, is really interesting downstream implications to the economy in Mexico. We can talk about that later. <laughs> like. But so, so, you know, law enforcement is starting 30 steps back. It has yeah. started stream. Yeah. You could dramatically expand law enforcement. You know, you could, you, you could fight a war on drugs times 100. I am not convinced that's the best use of the marginal policy dollar. Mm. Um, like, 
cops have to do other stuff. We have a historically, <laughs> you know, we, we, we have a massive homicide problem in the United States. Sure, sure. We have all sorts of petty crime problems. I'm a pretty big advocate of the cops. And anyone in my writing knows this. I'm just not convinced it's the best use of their time. So my stance on law enforcement is, in general, you want to keep. We want to keep doing what we're doing. We probably want to ratchet back enforcement to the levels that it was at in 2019 because it dropped pretty precipitously in 2020. You don't want to decriminalize drugs because we don't have the infrastructure to do. I'm I'm a little more sympathetic to the Portugal approach than some people. I, I think a lot mm. of people don't understand how Portugal works. Mm. Portugal has its own system of coercion that isn't technically called law enforcement. It still can be quite <laughs> coercive. Oh, interesting. Okay, I know that was in the news recently about how people were second guessing the legalization. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, my my read on Portugal is that if you have if you have some high level of informal informal coercion to pressure people into treatment and you properly invest in universal treatment availability, treatment on demand, you can make small possession decriminalization technically work. Um, okay, okay. Uh, but also, we don't do that in the United States. <laughs> right, right. We don't... Yeah. Our, our systems of coercion are different. They're the form of criminal justice system, which is why I would rather see enforcement focused on shifting people into treatment, continuing to deter drug... to, to target drug dealers, working more closely with treatment capacity than they currently are able to do in many... just a separate conversation. But sorry, when talking about when you when you don't want to go in the liberalization direction, but I do not think that the relevant policy margin to address the current crisis on is you know if if somebody said increase spending ten x to address the issue, I would not put those you know I would not say let's spend ten x more on law enforcement versus other policy priorities. Exactly. So Um, so out of curiosity, you mentioned these downstream effects in Mexico. What what would those be? Oh, just I. So if you if, if if you have an economy that's like or if you have large sections of the economy that are reliant on the high street price of heroin and other illicit drugs, and then all of a sudden there is a market shattering revolution in production that drive prices essentially to production cost, um, mm-hmm. which is like free. All of a sudden, a lot less <laughs> money is flowing into your economy. So like it's a big problem for you know there there are sections of Mexico that have been they just grow poppies and that's what they do and right. they are completely out of luck. It's been it's 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 economically disruptive in the same way that innovation is often disruptive. Right. In 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 the mm. in the legitimate economy, it's the same thing. Yeah. Wow, that's that's fascinating. I gotta, well, so Charles, the final approach you wanted to mention, and you, you started to allude to this in your last answer about also focusing on prevention rather than just law enforcement responses. You talk about how I think this is in 2022, federal government spent 19.5 billion on treatment, but just 2.3 billion on prevention. And you mentioned things like public education campaigns. I know we can talk about cigarettes again. You mentioned that earlier. What would this look like, and and you know why should we expand spending money on that type of prevention? Yeah, so prevention is a little bit like the Simpsons screenshot that people pass around, where it's like, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. <laughs> I mean, so you know, yeah. pre- prevention gets a bad rap, because yeah. when yeah. people think of prevention, they think about just say no, and mm. they think about dare. Uh, yep, yep. And yeah. dare probably didn't work. Um, Dare is a specific policy intervention. Probably, we you know we have a reasonable evidence to say that it did not reduce drug consumption. That's reasonable. That doesn't mean prevention programming in general cannot work. Okay. We still do not have a lot of evidence, a lot of high quality evidence on what does and does not for, work for for prevention. We are pretty sure that it matters to target young adults because if you don't use drugs by the time you're 25, you're very unlikely to use drugs for the rest of your life. We're pretty sure about that, just as an observational matter. But we, there's a lot that we still don't know. So it's it's worth investing in much more than we currently do. As you alluded to, we spend $2 billion a year on prevention. That's mm-hmm. nothing by federal government standards. That's mm-hmm. like, you know, they could find that in the couch cushions. <laughs> Which, yeah, right. It's nothing. Right. So, you know, my, my view is, A, we need to get much better at prevention. We look at successes. There's, there's a, 
I, I think you probably cannot replicate it at a national scale here in Iceland. They have this program called Youth in Iceland. Yeah, just a comprehensive. It involves it involves getting parents to sign contracts. Involves a national curfew. It involves social emotional learning, which is of course controversial in the United States because it's often cover for craziness. But I think, you know, thinking about these more comprehensive models, particularly targeting people at risk for drug use, in the other area that I work in, criminal justice, there's actually a fair amount of success using cognitive behavioral therapy for people at risk for crime. Sure. I think there's potential there. But there's a lot that we just don't know about prevention because we don't bother to measure it and we don't have, there's no funding for it. Right. There's, it's not a priority. Good prevention, you know, good gold standard studies are not a priority. That's thing one. And thing two is that I, I, I genuinely believe that Americans do not understand how dangerous drug use is today. That yeah. It is simply mm-hmm. dangerous in a way that it was not historically. And the federal government isn't, you know, if, 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 if I could do one thing, I, 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 I said a study in here that just sort of asks, that asks people, you know, asks, asks school kids, what would you find persuasive? And it's just hypothetically, so who yeah. knows if it actually works. <laughs> what would you find persuasive in, in uh, anti-drug programming? And what they say is, you know, if you present us like genuine facts, we will find that persuasive. Like if you're honest with us and direct. And my response is, we can be honest and direct and say, this is how deadly fentanyl is. This is just objectively true. This is so much worse than you see. I have a, I have a chart in here, this like exponential curve. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's a dramatic yeah, increase. Like, yeah, it's right. it's, it's yeah. dramatic. Right. So I think if you give Americans the facts, the DA has kind of tried to do this. The DA has, a, has an advertising campaign. There's sort of some stuff here and there from the National Library Council. There's nothing on the, sale, on the scale of the Just Say No campaign in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. There is nothing on the scale of... We just went through. Look, I feel what the COVID death rates are. It's like six hundred. It's like six hundred thousand people a year. Something like four hundred, six hundred thousand people a year. About a hundred thousand people are going to die every year from drugs. I'm saying, if you want to spend a quarter of what you spent on messaging to people about COVID, sure, <laughs> yeah. a sixth yeah. of what you spent on messaging yeah. to people about COVID, you would be doing far, far more yeah. than we currently do. Yeah, people do not understand. People do not understand how dangerous drug use and when you th- drug use is today. And when you think about those marginal users, you go back to the tobacco example. When you think of the people who are deterrable, some of their problem is information. They think drugs are something that they are not. They think that they are primarily a health problem. They're a death problem. And until they get that, until you say, hey, these things are true, change your behavior accordingly, they will continue to have problems. Yeah. So uh, final question, Charles. Do you see there being any kind of momentum going forward in, in Congress and uh, the White House to take the drug crisis more seriously. You, <laughs> your answer about you know the kind of lack of funding for these programs would suggest maybe not. But you did know that lawmakers in their last spending bill made it easier for doctors to prescribe MAT. And so do you think that there could be more action coming or do we just need a new Congress and or a new yeah. president? I mean, look, I think that there are there, there, there have been a number of decent steps out of Congress. You know, the Trump administration got some movement on fentanyl. The Biden administration mm-hmm. has sort of gotten some movement on Mexico, but it's, neither of them is ideal. These are like baby steps. You know, I can talk through we have made these small concessions that have made things a little bit easier. It's reasonable. That's good. I'm glad it's happening. I don't say they're doing nothing. But I think that people really have not wrapped their head around the scale and urgency of the problem. I, right. I allude to the Biden ONDCP said its 2022 drug control plan was like, we want to reduce drug OD death rates by 15% by 2025. And if you do that, then in 2025, the drug OD death rate will be higher than it has been at any point in American history prior to 2020. Yeah. It is not, shall we say, ambitious. Yeah. Recently, there's been a sort of a kerfuffle. There's a, you may have heard about a drug called xylazine. Hmm. Um, so it's a, xylazine is a horse tranquilizer which is now also being mixed into... It's actually 
been in Puerto Rico for like two decades. It's been a problem in Philly since the mid 2010s, and so huh. it's been spreading from there. It can be mixed into fentanyl. It, it it extends the length of and deepens the high. Part of the problem with fentanyl is it's quick up, quick down. So it's meant to offset that. Also, it causes your skin to necrotize and fall off. So that's wow. bad. Yeah. And it causes overdoses that cannot be reversed by naloxone because it's not an opioid. So this is a huge emerging problem, and you can sort of see it ticking up. The reason I bring this up is that the Biden administration put out a xylazine response plan, and 90% of the plan is a plan to make a plan. We will mm. have some people come up with treatment proposals. We will investigate how to do enforcement. We will have somebody come up with a test strip. It's like, yeah, that's not a plan. It's a plan for somebody to make a plan. Right. You know, again, look, it's and 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 your your listeners will have diverse opinions about the COVID nineteen crisis, but you know what I, what I'll say very narrowly is, I can know how many people died of COVID yesterday in the right. United States. I can know how many people died of drug ODs, like as of Ju- like December of last year, January of this year, yeah. and only kind of. Mm-hmm. And that's a major improvement over where we used to be. Like, we do not understand this crisis as having the urgency that it does. This is sort of, you know, my big view is, uh, do I think that Congress is... I think if you talk to anyone in Congress, they'll say, yes, this is an issue. We need to do something about it. But they will treat it like any other drug crisis. They will treat it like crack. They will treat it like treat it less seriously than crack. They'll treat it like heroin. They'll treat it like the meth crisis in the 2000s. You mm-hmm. know, we can sort of poke and prod it and assume the job is done. I don't think that they're thinking about it with the urgency that they need to be thinking about it. Certainly. Yeah, well, Charles, a fascinating conversation. I think, if nothing else, you writing the essay and coming on will hopefully encourage people to take it more seriously or at least try to spur some action. It's, it's obviously very much needed. So thanks again for, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Of course. If you'd like to read Charles' essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com. Consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. You can find more episodes of our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.